Hi everyone, I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched some of our content so far and liked it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. At the end of this video, we'll have a wonderful rendition of Come Glorious Colors Rise by Libertas Choir. Today, we're talking with Ingrid Jones. Ingrid is a founder of Mokiteko Media. Mokiteko Media is an award-winning communications agency that is behind publications such as in-flight magazines for Mango Airlines, FastJet, and Big Issue. She's also a straight-talking motivational speaker, and we're looking forward to learn more about her today. Ingrid, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Peter, for the invitation. I'm excited to have this chat with you. We're also very excited. I, I just want to first ask, um, as, as a precursor, um, I'm also aware you're involved with some other activities. Um, could you please uh, uh, elaborate on that? Well, I, uh, during lockdown, uh, when people were starting to cook and making banana loaves, um, I was also on the internet, um, but I can't cook. <laughs> and so a friend of mine, Ruby Marks, who at that stage was the ambassador to Sri Lanka, um, reposted a recipe that I made, a babuti recipe. And then she said, because that particular recipe was posted in Taste magazine. And then she said, well, wh when will our recipes be, you know, taken out by these glossy magazines? And then I said, well, why don't we do it as a joke? And then it wasn't a joke, because then I also <laughs> was reminded of the fact that I work for a publishing house. And so during lockdown, we then um, brought out a magazine called Cusisto. Um, which is now a quarterly, as if I didn't have enough to do. And over and above that, also a book um, published by Anna Kamiller, um, Eitgevers, um, called Lockdown Recipes Storytelling Book. And all recipes um, in the book are supplied by uh, a Facebook group um, that started under lockdown. Yeah, so that keeps me busy. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, they didn't know you were busy enough with magazines already. They wanted to put you in another one. You're just quite that popular. Um, you were recommended to, uh, we were recommended to talk to you um, by one of our previous uh, interviewees, uh, Dr. Gillian Orenser, uh, which was an amazing discussion of itself in that he helped um, give some perspectives that he had um, as someone who grew up. I mean, you know, he, he, he not the majority of his life was spent during um, the apartheid era, but he grew up in that era and he explained of some of the remnants that remain. Um, he also said that you have a special connection with it that we'll explain um, shortly. But is there some of the notable experiences that highlight your experience growing up in that time as well that you'd like to share? Look, I had um, probably two seminal years. Uh, I'm much older than Gillian, so my life experience is <laughs> quite longer than his. Um, so I was um, smack bang in the 76 movement. Mm. Uh, I was in standard seven, which is now grade nine. And when it broke the whole thing uh, down with Afrikaans, I was there. Um, so I was away from my parents' home because there were no schools for black slash brown children where we came from. Um, and we had to leave our homes to go and live in hostels in, in other towns. I went to high school in, in Worcester. I'm, I'm from Bonneville originally. So uh, I'm an Afrikaans girl. And so I knew nothing else other than speaking Afrikaans. And so when this broke, it was a huge shock to my system that people are against this language that I so dearly love. And so I was 13 years old, and immediately we, we used a word called conscientization at the time. And we were, you know, thrown in there, and we, were, we had to listen to political education by the older guys um, who were at that stage um, in matric and in uh, standard nine, or those last two years of high school. 
and and some of the guys who went away to university came back to the school to kind of teach us, and that's the word conscientization, what politics are. The first time, you know, we heard about ANC um, and and the movements that were by then already for the longest time uh, in um, in exile, and so th the learning curve was steep and 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 um, sometimes excruciating. For example, uh, we were taught everybody to have respect for for older people, and so there was the principal of our school, this very respected guy. You know that had to be chased away from from where the where kids were congregating, and it was like, oh, oh, how do you how do you do that um, to mm. a, a respected person of the community? And mm. um, so that was '76, and then I you know I started um, myself and my that generation that is today probably also called the '76 generation. I mean it went way worse in other parts of the country, like for example in Soweto um, and Orlando and so on. Whereas, and then came uh, 1984, 85. 84 or 85, if I remember correctly, I was teaching. That was my first job. I taught it to the high school in Delar, Excelsior Secondary. And it was the year, I started the year after the kids refused to write metric, the year of the super SRCs. And so when I got there, those kids were either promoted or they stayed behind. Yeah. Um, and so again, as a young teacher of 20, whatever odd years straight from university, I was in this cauldron of, now what now? And I was an Afrikaans teacher. Um, so, you know, and, and of course, the, the years at university was probably the best years. I mean, whatever we went through, if we look back um, during the time, I was there from 80 to 85, yes. Um, and, and, and those years in terms of political conscientization and learning about, you know, black consciousness, um, Black Panther movement in America, all of these authors that we suddenly got exposed to, um, it was just extraordinary times. Yeah. No, I can, I can only imagine. Your, um, your, your experience itself was, was quite um, phenomenal growing up in that area and being part of that generation. Uh, but even more so, um, your husband, uh, Peter Jones, actually knew Steve Biko. Um, do you have any interesting tales to convey about the legendary figure? Look, I don't have interesting. I, I'm much younger than them. So, you know, they were big shots and big eyes. Um, by then, by then uh, Steve passed away already or was killed, murdered. Yeah, murdered. Um, so when I uh, eventually uh, met Peter, uh, I didn't know he was. You know, that's how politically naive we were. Yeah. And and then someone asked me, like, you know that guy? I'm like, no, what do you mean? And then gave me a book um, where the, uh, I had to read a penalty on the back page. And that is when I started discovering that he was actually um, one of Steve's closest allies. And, for example, the one thing that I can tell you is that when they were, they, the two of them were in, in, in Cape Town for... Um, or conciliatory talks with the New Unity Movement and the ANC and all the organizations here. And at that stage, they were banned um, to, or Steve was banned to um, the Eastern Cape. Yeah. Uh, the, the name of the town for a moment um, eludes me now. Uh, and they were here to come and speak to, to the leaders um, from an Azapu Black Consciousness perspective because they were part of, part of that. And um, for some reason, on that particular night that they were supposed to see one of the particular leaders, 
they were not allowed into his house. He didn't come outside to greet them. And anyway, then, according to Peter's story, he said to Steve that, listen, I'm not feeling comfortable about this because he drove and, and Steve was the passenger. And they then decided they're going to return to King Williamstown. And then they were stopped at a roadblock uh, just outside of Grahamstown. Um, and initially, the police did not know who they were um, until, you know, they asked him to open the, the boot uh, where there was a lot of political pamphlets in it. But I mean, it could, could have been anyone. And it's only when they asked Steve to step outside of the car that they realized who it was. So it wasn't a roadblock specifically for them. And from there, they were taken to um, Port Elizabeth. Um, I think it was the Sunlam uh, Center, uh, old building over there, where they were taken to, I can't remember the floor now, you know, um, mm. and they were kept separately. Mm. And in those times, in that time, Steve died because he was then taken from there uh, somewhere else. Peter didn't know that Steve was dead. No one, no one told him anything. Until Steve was killed, let's assume two weeks later, it was the right. first time that he found out that, that Steve was killed. Um, when he was transferred to another prison, and he then heard, um, when he um, got into the prison, they asked who's, who's coming inside. He said, it's Peter Jones. And then they said, then they said well, I'm so sorry that, about Steve. And that's the first time that he, right. that he heard um, about that. But, you know, according to him, Steve was a fun guy. Mm. Um, he loved to party. Uh, he loved music. Um, they did a lot of work in the Eastern Cape with, with self-reliance. That was the big thing of the Black Consciousness Movement. Uh, I don't know Steve is uh, famous for saying, Black man, you are on your own. Um, and so they, for example, with uh, Dr. Mampele Rampele, sold a clinic um, in the middle of the Lalis in the Eastern Cape called Zanempilo. And Zanempilo, for example, is still in existence if you go down to the Eastern Cape now um, as an exercise of what you can do if you have the political will, if you have the foresight, and if you take the community with you. Because there was nothing. Mm -hmm. So there was they built a clinic for people, um, not just for, um, you know, for Dr. Mampela who could um, deliver babies there in the middle of nowhere, um, but also to see to other um, community issues. All of those things are still there in the Eastern Cape and where Steve lived uh, and so on. So, you know, mm -hmm. great legacy that, that, that he left behind. Mm -hmm. That's that's an incredible perspective, I think, in terms of history. We were way more taught of his uh, political actions and the activism that he stood for, and not really necessarily as him as a person, which was, you know, a fun-loving, yeah. you know, positive person that liked to party. It was, it was, it's it's important to remember the humanity behind it. Um, I also want to light up, on, uh, sorry, notice and um, point out something that you mentioned at the start, which was um, that as an Afrikaans person, the um, anti-apartheid movement, which was grounded in Afrikaans being from the Afrikaans-dominated um, uh, government, it, it felt actually like, or rather that's what I want to ask is, did it feel like um, the, the people from the color community that were Afrikaans first language, home language, were neglected actually by the movement? Or, or do you have experiences to say like, how, how did you become involved and how, how, did that, how was that received? As Afrikaans speaking, if you person. say the movement, if you say the movement, then what? I mean, I mean, all protest actions against the 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 old government and uh, the the down with Afrikaans movement specifically in that time. Yeah, look, it's a very complex question that right. needs a complex answer. 
Mm. So I grew up in this Afrikaans community uh, where, you know, there was this definite, um, the, the train spoor, you know, but it wasn't the, the railway line that ran through the, to the white and, and, and the colored community. Yes. Um, there was a, a sloot, I don't know what a sloot is. Moat, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but like a canal, a canal. Yeah, a canal. Um, that, that divided the, the two. And so the, the, the difference is the stock, because mm. we know, uh, knew that there was a high school, but we had to go away um, for a different high school. But the one defining thing about that time is, for example, there were two political parties. In the, in, in, I don't know if you remember the tricameral system. So there was, we, we taught it. Uh, I, I don't live in that time. I was born in 1994. Oh, sorry, but continue. Sorry, um, yeah. So there's a, so there was that. So there was the, the colored component and the Indian component. And black people were never represented in anything because they were banished to right. the homelands, the Bantustans. So in, in that time, we were when I was in high school, no, no, primary school, very aware that there were two, two, two sides of this politics. There were the, the Labour Party under Alan Hendrickson, and then there was the Federal Party. I cannot remember who their leaders were. Um, I think it was Alicia Janssen in the end. I can't remember all of those names because the lines were so stark. You know, if you're, so, and it was also run along the lines of, of church. So, my, for example, we grew... Up Anglican, but when my father became the principal of the Dutch Reform School, we were, you know, uh, shifted towards that side um, of the community. So we had to become Dutch Reform people. And I mean, I don't have to remind you of the history of the Dutch Reform Church, but who knew? I was 12, 39 years old. Who knew? And mm. so there, already people were divided by uh, religious or, or faith lines. So, mm. so there's the the, the English Church. Um, the Anglican Church, the Afrikaans Church, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Dutch Reform. So those were the two. And so we all, some of us went to the Dutch Reform School and some of us went to the Anglican School, the English School, when no one spoke English. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> because we are all Afrikaans-speaking people, we only knew English because we had to recite it from the, the liturgy. Mm. And so then these political parties were you either Labour Party or either um, Federal Party. And so, so, you know, that's what we grew up with. So Afrikaans was never part of the equation. And it was only like I said to you when, when we came to Cape Town that we could understand what was happening. There were a, a few, I, I counted on my one hand, black families living in, in Bolivar where I came from. And there was never an us and a them. It was always, you know, it's always an us. Mm. Um, there were no dividing lines. We, you know, we played together, we whatever together. That's what we knew. Um, so only when I started teaching, you know, uh, uh, the, the, I became aware, I, I, I heard cops um, only when I came to Cape Town. I don't speak cops. I, so I, I, it's not something I speak. I'm not because I didn't grow up like that. I don't have anything against it. People must speak whatever they want. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and so I heard this language and, you know, constantly because this is where I am now. And, um, and then Afrikaans, down with Afrikaans, I just didn't understand it. And, and so I started emerging myself into this Afrikaans world. Um, I started writing. I'm not too bad at writing. I started writing for magazines and, um, you know, and those kinds of things. So did I feel that there was something against Afrikaans as spoken by colored people? I know. 
for me, it is a political thing, you know, where you go up against the system, and Afrikaans was part of that system. It wasn't about the people. Mm. Uh, well, people is part of the package, but it was never, oh, you colored Afrikaans-speaking people, bloody, bloody, bloody. It was never that. Because if you look at the, at the, at the so-called colored leaders um, that became part of the UDF and the uh, unit, uh, the MDM and ANC and you know, all of these movies, there were a lot of them, and no one uh, was against them. Um, specifically, the people in the United Democratic Front, um, and it was not, and th that's the thing with black consciousness. You know, it is about building black people up to believe in themselves. It was never anti-white. It was never anti-anything, mm. um, because. Like Steve said, black man, you're on your own. You have to, you have to do it for yourself. The other people are not going to help you. So I never felt like that. I, I now more so feel that um, Africans, because you know, because people were starting to then, then kind of people started speaking English in droves because they kind of felt like marginalized and and so. On. But I must also say, kind of people bring this upon themselves. You know, um, it's not like. Uh, someone persecuted them, right? Specifically and maliciously. Um, but if you understand the the politics of this country, you will understand how closely many colored people was aligned to the National Party, International Party politics. Right. So when in nineteen ninety four, the elections and the National Party did not win, because remember, some of these people then came from the Federal Party. Mm. And the, the, the people from the Labour Party went mostly into the ANC and, and other structures. They didn't necessarily join um, uh, the National Party. Yeah. And it wasn't long for the National Party to die because it had no purpose anymore, mm. you know? Mm. Mm. Uh, it didn't matter how many colored people they tried to co-op, it just did not work because it was, it was just rotten to the core. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind of gives the background where, where, where colored people started feeling, oh, but we're not good. we were not good enough under apartheid. Mm. We were not mm. good enough uh, in mm. the new dispensation. So we kind of feel like we're in the middle of the sandwich. And one has to, if you're a psychologist, you know, and you have to start chipping away at what is responsible for that inferiority complex, you'll come yeah. to a closer answer as to why people feel that they are marginalized. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's a fantastic a perspective. It's 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 actually contrary to what I would say is um is common belief among my generation that didn't live through that time, but rather just learn from it. Uh, perhaps it's different in different communities, but it's really really interesting to know. Um, back to the part where you said you're really good at writing. You evidently applied this in your life, and are now the co-founder of uh, Mikateko Media. Um, well, I want, yeah. just want to know, like, what, what's the goal and the mission of uh, Mikateko Media? If you could if you could sum it up in in, in a short sentence. You've got very complex questions in this time of lockdown and the <laughs> pandemic. So when we started yes. out, we had lofty ideals of we're going to be the number one publishing country in South Africa. Mm. And we are black females. I mean, we had it made, man. Um, so <laughs> we started with a very small boutique agency. And we are mostly female driven. Um, mm. You know, most of our staff are females made by design. It's just how it happened. Um, and so very quickly, our first, we were three initially, uh, founders um, and directors, and um, we, we had a, a, a shareholder, a minority shareholder, 
um, whom we used to work for. And then we go like, okay. we will never get anywhere unless one of these people die. So yeah. why don't we just do it for ourselves? Mm. Um, and so then we broke away from there. They gave us a little bit of money, very few. Mm. I can't even remember. But it's not even 100,000, whatever, mm. which we paid back just- um, like within... Because we landed our first account very, very quickly, which was nice. Transnet. Yeah. Um, and from there, um, you know, we started with Mango Magazine, for, for, which is the airline magazine for mm-hmm. Mango, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of moment I had there. <laughs> um, but the magazine is called Juice. Yes. And I then became the editor, which I still am, um, because my client apparently is so in love with me that they want to let me go. <laughs> um, then along came SAA, Sabona, which we won, um, and FastJet, that's a, a regional airline. Uh, so we've got three airlines in our table, so it's a national carrier, a regional carrier, and a local carrier. So sometimes when I'm a little bit braggy and, see, and, and you know, people say, oh, but I've got an audience of you know, Instagram people, um, I've got um, 100,000 followers, I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm. On a monthly basis, <laughs> I speak to millions of people. Let's talk about the base. So it's yeah. a very um, yeah. weird position to be in. You know, it's not a, those are not magazines that it's, just, it's lifestyle. It's not like I can have like a voice, but I do try. Um, and so, so yeah, so I physically, uh, I'm now called editor in chief, very fancy schmancy, but mm-hmm. um, I still, I, I still do, you know, I, I, I train a lot of people. Um, because you have to, when, like right. you said, black man, you're on your own, you have to train the next generation because you're not going to be there forever and for always. And I am a great believer in you have to pass on the skills that you were privileged to be mm. given by people who, who came before you. So, yeah, mm. so, so where are we now? Um, as you know, magazines are closing left, right, and center. Yes. And so what do we call ourselves? Are we still a publishing company? Do we call ourselves a media house, a media agency? Mm. What do we do? So we have started, well, you know, publishing is still a thing. So during lockdown, um, when all of these magazines closed down, it's very sad, you know, because these were the, like the rear wishes, the, the stalwarts of, of South African society. Um, you look overseas, the same thing, you know. Um, so what now? How do you bring out like madness, like me, a magazine in the middle of, um, are you crazy? But you know, the world has changed. And South Africans might believe falsely that we are part of a first world um, IT-driven community. Um, we might be early adopters and first adopters where a lot of things are concerned. But where online is concerned, I don't think so. Our society is so fragmented, still in the hands and the have-nots, that a, a very few can afford data like you and I sit on Wi-Fi today and we can have hours long discussions. Some people don't even have, they don't even know what the gig means. They, they mm. don't understand what it means. Um, it's just beyond their brains. So how do you communicate to people? How do you get essential information about COVID mm. to yeah. the furthest of our communities who live in the lullies in the middle of nowhere, no access? How do you speak to them? It's still via traditional means. Print. Show people how to wash their hands. Show people how to social distance. They, m- many people might have cell phones and have access to data. So how do you communicate to them? 
Mm. If you do communicate to them, then those are not the things that they are interested in necessarily right now. They are interested in the stuff that keeps families together. Mm. That's the stuff. Let me find out how you're doing. Let me find out um, where my loved one must be buried within three days if you pass away. Those are the yeah. things that keep people, um, you know, clinging to the breadline. Um, yeah. So, and, and I think it's an exciting time for publications to relook themselves, you know, where you, the old ones are dead because they serve a particular purpose. And that yeah. purpose has been redefined by long-term. So what is it that people would like to know now? And apparently, people my age, the silver surface, we are the new kids on the block. Mm. That's very interesting for me. That mm. those youngsters on the magazine covers don't sell anymore. It's us mm. old people. Yeah. Well, it also it so also fits to the gener generation. Where we are. Sorry. Oh, it's, yeah. So that's where yeah, you are. No, it's, it's also very much connected to I think to generations like the magazines and stuff were so incredibly formative. Um, to your generation so that's what's stuck there but also innovating in the way that you did to adjust for the incredible challenges that COVID faced you guys is also probably yeah. you know part of the reason who why who wants to know 20... sorry who still wants to know 25 positions for sex like who cares <laughs> you know stuff that used to sell yeah like yeah. magazines like I don't yeah. even understand chocolate will enhance your Sex, it's, it's sex here, and I can't remember, and chocolates. Those are the, mm. used to be the three things that would sell magazines. You yes. say that same frivolous things to people nowadays, you'll get smacked um, <laughs> because there mm -hmm. are other things that have become important. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also feel like the, um, the, those type of magazines, uh, the Cosmopolitans and so of the world, have also gone into the online sphere and have found their success. You know, in terms of you know Instagram followings and so on and so forth. But I want to know exactly what do you credit? Um, uh, your success to in terms of the media house? This is how, what, what, what changes? Is it the innovation? Is it the ability to adjust? Is it knowing your marketing career well? What, what do you credit your success to all the things that you've just now mentioned? Or is it, or is it everything? It's the last thing. It's, okay. it's the last thing mostly, but it is everything. You know, big media houses, I mean, look around. What does hmm. that happen to them? They yeah, had to slice on. the pie smaller and smaller and smaller, get rid yeah. of the albatrosses around their necks. So the more bespoke you are, the more agile you are. Not the more bespoke, the more, you know, boutique you are. Um, so we've, we've never had any ambitions to be bigger than what we are. We've had to do what we, what we are doing and in the process become, um, you know, um, catalysts and almost like a, a pipe through which young talent could be um, channeled. Because it, it's one of our pillars is to actually raise the next generation of black media professionals. Um, and with that, I'm not saying we not we don't have white staff or we're not there for white people mm. um you understand how mm. yeah. skewed that equation is they still yeah. go to Stellenbosch university journalism school they still go um yep. whereas some of our kids don't even have, they will come as interns and then we train them and then once they fully trained white companies take them away i get so mad <laughs> but i shouldn't because that's the job that we are in and that's what we are supposed to do um, so it's a combination of those things to never get greedy, never, ever get greedy, do what you can and do it to the best of your ability. You do not have to change the entire world. Just look in front of you. Maybe that's the patch that you can, you know, toil and, mm. and make a difference from where you are. I am a huge believer in local, um, from clothing to buying furniture that's made by local people and so on. But yeah, man, do it. Yeah. Why do we always look to the rest of the world to show us 
what we, we do. You ask the Americans about, um, for example, what we do with cell phone banking. Most people don't even know what we're talking about. You know, oh. that's how ahead we are in this IT game um, mm. in terms of early adoption and so on. But again, mm. I, I, I'm not sure if I finished the point that we're not America, we are not Britain, we are mm. not uh, people who consume media like that. We are a developing country. And we need to remind ourselves about that all of the time. Um, because if we do not understand that we are still a developing country, we will behave like we are a, a superpower. Um, and then we will leave the most vulnerable behind. It just mm. will be the 1% who will be fine. But the rest mm. will, will not be. You know how revolution happens with mm. one. 1% yes, yeah. means nothing. Mm. 99%. Push you out. Yeah, no. Yeah. We we had a fantastic discussion um, a few podcasts ago with the uh, vice chancellor of UCT of Transformation, and um, one of the questions we asked there was, um, you know, do you think that printed or in person or class, you know, education will continue, or will this all just become digital and so on? And she made exactly the point as you did now, where she said that we have this we had this perception that South Africa is this interconnected, you know, high quality world standard internet society, but they still had to send out laptops to students that didn't have laptops. They, they do it as a standard, but I mean, and they had to provide data for people that didn't. And even if they go back to those communities, there might be communities of students that live in the same room with the entire family. And then that's impractical to learn in. So it's all this environments is actually still, we're part from all the way from the one side to the other side, but we have this idea on the internet that yes, we're, we're up there. Um, so it's yeah. it's interesting balancing that Absolutely. I think has so many opportunities. Um, what what do you what do you advise yeah. be for anybody that starts a um, their own company um, to to be able to is, is it important to to be able to identify a market and that's going to be where you lead your success in or is it the people that you hire? Um, for example, you said you're a majority um, black woman uh, business organization um, that that help you as well to help you be more representative in executive positions or not? Uh, how exactly what advice would you give? You know, let me first answer this. If you're not diverse in the newsroom, if you're not diverse in the boardroom, if you're not diverse in the corporate environment, you're never going to win. You're not going to win. Mm. 1994 made sure that at least that bit of history is dead. So um, it's, a, it's, again, it's a combination of the things that you um, were talking about. How do you, how do you start your own, your own thing? You, there are many opportunities in South Africa, so many opportunities. But we are also a nation of, we like to be spoon-fed. We like to say, oh, but the government must do this. You know, we are such bad children. So when the president says, calls a family meeting, we go into jitters because we do not even know what we did wrong, but we know. Mm. Um, so we love that, that idea that the government, because that's what the ANC and this, the liberation movement said, the people shall govern, right? Does the people govern? No, the people are not governing. You know, uh, individual, a few people um, are, are governing. So how do, you, how do you identify that need? And that's the, the, the crux right there. What, you, I think people must look at themselves, right? Yeah. If you know that there is no, I'm going to give a simple example. I live here in Pringle Bay. There's no Woolies. There's no clothing stores. There's no nothing. So what's the opportunity right here? Mm. Is there a Woolies-like deli, mm. right? Mm. To satisfy the need of the rich and shameless, of which I am no part. Um, <laughs> so so that's, that's a need, right? Mm. 
that needs to be satisfied. You will be successful. You're not going to become as strong as well as it doesn't matter. You're surviving in a small community. So what are the needs? COVID, um, so many opportunities. Most of them ended in corruption with, um, you know, the uh, masks and uh, tenders that went to friends and family. Um, but what are the other things that happen? Yeah, you know. Um, so if you must look around you and identify the needs around you. What would you want to have solved for yourself that's not out there? Mm. For example, mm. I can now call a shop in town and they will deliver ice cream before it melts to my house. Someone saw the need in the middle of summer and decided, well, that's what I'm going to do. So mm. it's not the big things. People think that it's the big things. It's not. It's the small things. Um, like look at Facebook, a couple of friends who liked each other on a network and now they are dominating the world. Mm. You know what I mean? That's mm. so not always the big things. It's the small things. Identify them and then surround yourself with some people who think like you, but the majority of the people should not think like you. Otherwise, mm. you will never be pushed into any direction to, to be better and higher and, and all of those things. So don't just surround yourself with yes, yes, no, kick them to the curb. Find the people who make you so angry that you do not want to go back to work the next day. Those are the people who will make you become better as a company and as, as a person. That, that's that's awesome. I feel like that's such a cool message. It's, it's such a, you know, it's not only step out of your comfort zone, but bring your uncomfort zone to you so that you form better as a person. I, yeah. I love that sentiment as well. It's really, really cool. Um, you had to solve don't, something. Sorry? Don't make the circle bigger. Don't make the circle bigger. Smash the circle. Ah, okay. Yeah, that, that's that's very important, actually. That's very important. Um, I, I just want to talk about some of the challenges um, you had to face. If if you still had to deliver printed media to the people that didn't have access before it, um, before, and, and you you know that there's such a market for it now because these people don't have the data, they don't have the uh, necessary devices to be able to watch things digitally in a time where we can't move. How exactly do you go about solving? that problem to get the physical stuff to people in a time of lockdown getting the information spread to them is it regulatory and then you need to get the drivers or, or do you build that up all your all out of yourself you know what if someone listens to you now there lies the next opportunity for an entrepreneur it's, okay is the how do you get from point a to point b because many of those companies have told it um because they are also traditionally oh we must take this magazine for x amount of of uh, of stores and they might not want it because they don't want people to touch mm. it, blah, 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 blah. Mm. So what did we do? We decided to make our office a drop, uh, a takeaway zone, right? Okay. So you order your magazine, you pay, you mm. come and collect, you drive by the gate, and mm. one will hand it to you, right? Mm. There you go. You can mm. decide on the date that you want it, the hour that you want it, there will be someone to deliver to a band deliver your magazine for you. We yeah. then took our staff and we said, listen, we know everyone needs money. Um, so if you take your car and you drive to some of these areas, we will put petrol in your car. We will pay you okay. for the hours that you're not, whatever. Go and yeah. drop these magazines at people's houses. So, But that's not a sustainable solution. So we have tasked our youngsters um, to come up with a new distribution model, you know, because people do not want this magazine, for example, in digital format. They want a physical copy in their hands. Mm. 
because it's by the people. I'm not writing anything in it. The people are writing it. And that is the thing when you involve the people, they will carry you on their shoulders. They want this like a piece of history. I'm not talking about this magazine specifically and the book. Um, so the publisher drives to your house to come and deliver the book if you can't go and collect it. But like I said, it's not sustainable. And, and that is what we need to think of. How do we get these things to people? You know, we had an auntie, Auntie Ivy. Oh, I love it dearly. Like just old aunties with a, um, the, the a nail just like filed like in, in a triangle and so on. She's like old school. Um, and so we said to her, she needs to make an online payment. And she was like, no, she know how to do that. So we said, so what can we do? And she says, no, she's going to go to the post office. She's going to fill in a postal order. And then I'm like, what? <laughs> we, like, does that still even exist? Yeah. Anyway, but do you understand the digital yeah. divide? Yeah. You know, that they, they don't know. So anyway, we sent someone to her home um, to show her what she must do and over the magazine. And today she's more savvy than we are. That's like eight months later. Mm, so it yeah. just needs someone to show them what it is that they must do. Yeah, yeah. that's actually a great business opportunity as well. I feel like there's, you know, some people had to, they just absolutely were forced into the learning curve and able to just simply, you know, do the basic things like connect with the people that you were able to talk about on a daily basis. If they can't be there in person, you don't really have much other of a choice other than the telephone or digital. And the phone is so incredibly expensive. So there's a business opportunity there and able to, you know, to create an educational medium that these people can understand perhaps in magazine format, actually, which is something they're familiar with, to teach them how to do things digitally, which empowers them. And I'm pretty sure most people are willing to learn, you know, given the opportunity and given the, the patience that they, that they deserve. Yeah. 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 I mean, okay. she, the, the, the Tanya is just a perfect example thereof. Um, I, I wanted to ask a question out of pure curiosity, right? So I've, I've been privileged enough to fly long distance. And the magazine mm -hmm. that sits in front of you I don't know how many people read that and also don't know why they read that. So how do you go about designing that magazine? I, 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 do, I don't understand. Like sometimes you open it and it's just a lot of ads for things you can buy that's very overpriced on the plane. And then on the other hand, you know, it's some interesting article, but it's four months old. You know, how, how do you go about designing the magazine that goes in an airplane to actually catch you people's attention? There's an article that's four months old. What do you mean? No, some of the some of the what some of the international flights I've been on, the magazine that they put in there, they don't do a lot of effort to put in new interesting articles. They put the old magazine in there, and by the time you read it, it's the same one you you read on the flight back, for example. That so, is so sad. Luckily, yeah. I don't work for those airlines. No. Um, listen, um, when you design a magazine, any magazine, okay. right? Uh, this is our pre-lockdown. People spend at most 25 minutes with a magazine. Okay. So then you have to decide. So in that 25 minutes, what are you going to do? Mm. So a magazine is, de is designed. There's a stupid, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning of the magazine will be the shorter snippety pieces. Okay. It's like when you um, come onto the plane, you're just settling in, you're reading a little bit of the short stuff. And so now um, we are mid-air, we are beyond 30 feet in the 30,000 feet in the air. So now we're in the middle of the magazine. It's called a well, right? Mm -hmm. Like a dam. Mm -hmm. Where the best stuff is packed in, right? Mm -hmm. The loose articles, um, 
the most expensive ads. Um, so while you are sitting down in that 25 minutes, you might, might not read um, one or two or three of those longer um, articles. Mm. And then you go to the back of the magazine, right? Where again, we're now ready for coming into the airport. So now you're going to read shorter, snippety stuff. Mm -hmm. We work with contributors from around the world. So we will never have an article that is four months old or whatever. Um, so they, the, our contributors come from everywhere. Uh, we, we try and make it fresh. We will never have the same content online that we will have in the magazine. There will be uh, differences. Um, like exclusivity. So how do we keep people busy? We only have a window period of 25 minutes. That's mm. it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I fully understand what you are saying and appreciate that. So maybe on the trip back, you can read the other one in your 25 minutes and not the same article. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a great idea. I, I think that's so I important. I tell you this little You know, there were the South Africans do not want to take magazines off the plane. It can say their free copy, you are allowed to take it off the plane. We have to beg people to take it off the plane because they think okay. they're stealing. Like, no, you're not stealing. <laughs> You are allowed to take that. It's off the plane. It's okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, that's, yeah. that's actually and very important. I, I, sorry, interesting. I never thought that you're allowed to actually take the magazine off the plane. I thought it was, you know, there for everybody to have. Say so. Free copy. Thank you. That's, that's a, I yeah. think that's a perception that needs because to change. Need to replenish. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you should do um, you should do more you airplane magazines than just three carriers because uh, you'll actually fill them with interesting content that I'd like to read. The other ones are incredibly boring. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, thank you so much. That's very, yeah, very cool. That's, that's very interesting. Um, so you also mentioned that you try to give good articles written by the people and that's why they're invested in it. And if you wrote an article in any type of you know book or a magazine or, or newspaper, so you want to have the physical article and then you know save it in your house because you wrote that and your family will treasure that for a long time. That's, that's part of like your pride and your history. But there is a a feeling yeah. that people have towards media at the moment that the standards of journalism has slipped and then they don't respect it anymore. It's like the same amount of effort that maybe um, goes into magazines like you guys do, don't go into other magazines. They just write the pieces to get it out, to just fill it, you know, just have those, those filler um, um, things that people can consume on mass. Um, what do you feel about that? Do you think it's true? Do you think it's a minority and it just gets a lot of attention? What, what do you think about the state of journalism? What a broad question. Look, I'm in the lifestyle section of magazines. So it's, right. literally, it's easier, you know, to kind of guess what it is that people want. Um, and so that is easier. I am on record as hating bloggers. I hate them with a passion mm. because these are the people who have started to give us these bad names because they're okay. there for the freebies. Mm. They're there for the what can I get out of it. They're not writers. So then they offer these articles to us. I refuse. I don't want it unless I know how good you are. I'm sorry. I don't care that you got a freebie or went on the strip to wherever. I don't care. I'm not rewriting your article for you. And then I'm going to still pay you. So it's not happening. Um, but, but that being said. Um, so when you move from lifestyle magazines, for example, where you know it's relatively easier, but you also have to be very aware. I call it what we do, experiential traveling. So if you haven't gone to Thailand, but I'm not going to accept your article because mm. um, we do not do press release um, mm. journalism. 
where a, a, a PR company sends you an article and wants you to, and then they might pay you a rand or not. They mm. know. Mm. So when you move to hardcore news, I think they are struggling with fake yeah. news and how do people be, uh, distinguish between real news and fake news. And it is with the onset of anybody with a cell phone is a journalist nowadays, mm. whether mm -hmm. it's lifestyle or whether it's hard news. If mm. something happens in front of you, you take a video, and yeah. you post it online immediately. So mm -hmm. many media houses are starting taking these videos and news that they um, glean from the internet and they use it as leads. Whereas in the past, you had to go and find the story, you had to go find the lead, you had to go and do that. So it, they, they, they are responsible for their own demise in a huge way. Mm. Um, and that is how fake news entered the fray, mm. right? Donald Trump could push anything that he wanted into yeah. that because by then, you know, when he started, you know, keep on saying that's fake, that's fake, that's fake, that's fake. How, how do people distinguish in the end what's fake and what's real? Mm -hmm. And you have Fox News and then you have uh, CNN, oh my word, CNN <laughs> during the Trump, really people? Okay. Um, and then in South Africa, you have ENCA who's constantly being told, but you are biased, you're against the government. Then you have the SABC, you are psychophants of the government. And so it becomes very, very difficult. To, and then you, of course, have on a Sunday, you've got Twitter and you have black Twitter um, who will tell you that all of this is just all fake and these are the real news and blah, blah, blah. Mm. So there are still really good journalists out there. Adrian Basson of Network Twitter uh, is an outstanding young man, you know, who tries his darndest to get away from the old the burger, Nasper's um, mm. legacy that he is not responsible for in a direct way. And so he's trying very hard to be, to, to drive a new newsroom of inclusivity um, and diversity and so on. That's the only way, you know? So when someone says, well, but Peter Mulder um, is the scene where the year gesteered on the workup to come red, then someone else from the Eastern Cape must say, ha, what? Absolute yeah. hogwash because A, B, C, D, and E, I'm talking about in your newsroom, you know, yeah. you the, again, coming back to that thing, you, your balance of um, the people who are on your side and then the other people who will oppose you all of the time. That's the yeah. only way that we will get rid of it. So did journalism take a knock? Yeah, it did. But there are still good guys out there and there are still people who really, really, really wanted to do and they will just have to work harder um, and, and forget about um, you know, celebrity gossip and mm. poor um, Malusi Gigaba and his wife mm. on the cover of the next newspaper will sell the newspaper. People are sick of it, you know. Mm. They actually want to see what is going right in this country. And that's the stuff that we need to concentrate on and not this other BS that we have to that mm. dished up. Because the mm. assumption is that that is what people want. That's mm. the assumption. It's not based in fact. You did yeah. not ask people if it's okay with them if you give them this rubbish all of the time. Yeah, it, it, that 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 that's a, that's interesting because you think uh, initially bad news sold, right? Yeah. Definitely, it, it gained more traction um, than just you know, news as in a dilution of all possible um, things to report on. And I think, or rather, do you think that 
being flooded by negative news has made people realize that this is not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. And now they're looking for positive news again, or do you think they always wanted positive news and it was just this period of bad news sells? That's why it's, it's flooding the market. What do you think behind Listen, the movement? A little bit of a Sisyphus there. Okay. Push this turn off the mountain and roll back on. So you're absolutely right in saying that um, there was a time when people wanted all of this insider knowledge about things and people and oh my god look mm. how bad they are we are not mm. that bad they are equally mm. bad um and then you know can't credit trump for a lot of things but we have to credit him for for this mm. that people are so sick and sick of this i don't want to swear on your show but <laughs> we can do whatever you want <laughs> people are heartily sick of being thrown to the wolves like this mm. by a bully by people who bully you constantly online. Um, the same in South Africa, we have the same. We listen to the Zondo Commission and you go like, how are people this rotten? Mm. These were the people that we wanted to take as the people's government. What happened to the people's government? Are we just um, you know, perpetuating what the apartheid people taught them? You know, yeah. that this is our bad and how rotten you can be and all around the world you can there's this backlash against corruption there's this backlash against the bad of the world and yes the world is ready for good news is it sustainable ask sisyphus mm. you know once mm. you're up there mm. so things are cyclical you know it's yeah. never like oh my god this is now um, the new nirvana it will last until you know you have to take the next all where the next high will come from it's unfortunately a cycle that we we have to ride and and see yeah. where it takes us yeah yeah that, that's I, I really that's really cool I, I i feel like it's so important to point out that there's always you know there's always i always call it a sinus golf you know it's always like yeah, we yeah. go up and then we look at a lot of positive yeah. things and then people yeah. get tired of the positive things because it's not sustainable and then you go down the hole again so i, I yeah. hope that someday the sinus hole will like just flatten out a bit you know just just I peter into something that's reasonable world, it will Sorry? be the end of the world it will be the right end of the world. <laughs> yeah yeah, it's 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 just human nature for it to continuously yeah. go up and down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's a ton of factors. There's a million factors that that contribute to people's different feelings about it. Um, I know, for example, just the example of, of what you said now about new uh, good news winning. I think there's uh, uh, there's a newspaper um, called um, the Good News. I think it's actually the Good News in Hamas, yeah. um, yeah. and it's mostly local news. You know, you know yeah. the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's awesome to read. It's so great. It's like saying all the you know the, the 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 tournaments. Sorry, like the small sporting events that won, or you know other positive things that people like to see. And people still like to see it because if you look at the videos that go viral online for people like me that you know are very involved online, those are also generally very wholesome things. And the yeah. negative things obviously push through, but the things that kind of gain steady access or, or steady attention is is wholesome things as well. So there's there's a balance there, and it's it's, it's different yeah. communities as well. It's it's interesting to notice, and it's just great to know that you know print print media is is hopefully in your case at least noticing that and you're writing about things that people actually want to hear about not just negative things that might sell or so uh, do you think perhaps that because it's, it's a bit of a different discussion but do you think perhaps that the the drive towards ad revenue and the profitability therein um, could have pushed people to do lower quality journalism both in lifestyle and in in hardline journalism as well um, because if something gets too lucrative then you know, people will jump in that are not passionate about it and don't want to do the right thing. They just want to make a quick buck. Correct, correct, correct. Okay. Read. Yeah. That no, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's also a sentiment I feel like a lot of people, you know, are realizing now. Yeah, agreed. And mm. um, the, the amounts of money that was paid, um, the amounts of trades that were made, it is not sustainable. Someone must still buy that magazine. Yeah. And you yeah. can't force people to fork out X amount of money if they do not believe in your product. It doesn't mm. matter the pretty pictures that you put in there. It doesn't matter the amount of uh, stuff that you have done. They're not mm. interested. They are really mm. not interested. And so mm. articles that used to be 3,000 words long are now 700 words long mm. because apparently mm. we don't read anymore. Mm. you know until the new york times brought back the long read again mm. and so now we are long reading again you know that mm. curve yeah. um so i i i sincerely hope that we've seen the backside of of um some of these greedy um publishers um well they're dying a slow and painful death not all of them were greedy um but times have changed and people have changed. And, and if you don't change and evolve with the times, I mean, you're going to die a slow mm. and painful mm. death. Yeah. 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 People also appreciate things that they pay for as well. It's like, I think there's a saying, I'm not quite exactly sure if this is right, but I think there's a saying saying uh, that that goes, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, which Never. is just that if you, if you ever get something for free, like you get a magazine for free, you're paying for it in some other way. And usually in, in our case, that's advertisements or something, yeah. right? But if you pay for something, you're also going to look after it. So if you have to yeah. pay a smaller fee because there are still ads in the magazine, but it's a small fee, then you're going to appreciate that magazine because you had to fork out something for it. So you know, there's also important sentiment in the value of actually having to pay for something. Yeah. It's just making it a reasonable price so that it's still accessible to the people that wouldn't be able to buy it otherwise. It's a balance. Absolutely, Absolutely yeah. right. But it's, it's been incredibly insightful to chat to you. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. Is there anything else you'd like to add, lastly? Man, lastly, I've, I've gotten involved in the, um, I mean, involved in a talk show mm -hmm. called Tristan Owens between us with four other uh, women. Um, and so that's my new, you know, my new normal, mm. <laughs> whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Because I'm real. I mean, you can hear I, I love talking. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't want to just talk gibberish. I I want to have real conversation. And I used to call it open above the show. I used to do stuff on on um, on my Facebook. I would like interview a lot of people, the people that I want to interview that I find interesting, and can I can like ask them interesting questions. Um, and so I posted them on um, social media, and I did it for a radio station in like I mm. not don't have enough work to do for a radio station in Paul. Um, whose name I now also uh, eludes me. Mm -hmm. And it was the best 30 minutes I used to spend with these people. And um, and I would send it to the radio station and then they will post it on their social media stuff. And then people are like, but you need to do your own show. I'm like, mm -mm, I don't think, no, no. So during my, um, by doing that, I also started engaging a coach, something I was totally against, but now I am so coach, pro coach. Um, mm -hmm. and through that process, I started hearing myself saying a lot of things and I wrote them down. And so now, and then I did a workshop with coastal women, um, and, uh, and I called it circular conversations. Like what is circular conversations? Mm -hmm. What is going to be in the, um, in the handouts and what, are, what's the, you know, the cause notes I said, I've got nothing mm -hmm. like, what do you mean? You've got nothing. 
I said, I've got nothing. Those women don't know me. Mm. I don't know them. They might have seen me on television and they might have a perception of me. Mm. So how can I go with my brood on my arm to women who do not even have bread for their children for tomorrow? So these were coastal women, for example, whose husbands depend on, on, on fishing. Mm. So if the boats can't go out, then what do they do? So these small town communities are not empowered, the women, um, to look and fend, look after themselves and fend for themselves. They're always dependent on some male to look after them. And if he doesn't provide them, there's literally nothing in the house. Mm. And so I met with these 25 women um, on a three-day workshop. And they were waiting for notes. I'm like, there's no notes. We're going to make the notes right here. Mm. You're going to talk to me about yourselves. We're going to mm. come up with the business solutions right here. And by the end of day three, you can ask me again, where's the course notes? Mm. It was the best three days of my 2021, I must tell you. Mm. Those women left there and then I changed what I do um, from self-doubt to self-sustainability. That is so self-reliance. And so that's what I want to do with my life and time in 2021. Mm. Um, I really would like to go, I'm a Platelands amazing. I would like to go to those communities where people are so hopeless and just, you know, this whole thing, look in front of you, there might be something here that you do. So for example, they had jams that they made. I'm like, who made these jams? Auntie, old auntie puts her hand up. I said, why is your name not on this jam? You know why I will buy this jam? If Auntie Rini, if your name is there, Auntie Rini made this jam, I'll buy it. I'm gonna buy yeah. cool jam or whatever jam. Because yeah. it is about the support of local. And who can make jam better with Sirfaya than an yeah. auntie who lives at the seaside? Only yeah. you. No yeah. factory can do this. Yeah. So, you know, our next process will be about labeling and selling and going to market and so on. Yeah. So that excites me. You have no idea. It excites mm. me. That sounds awesome as well. I'd, I'd, I'd love to buy things that were, you know, locally made, personalized. And it's also just of a yeah. higher quality. And it's interesting because if, if that person makes it and they don't yeah. enjoy it, they're not going to yeah. sell it. But Absolutely. if they enjoy it, then you're probably going to enjoy it as well. Whereas Koo doesn't give a damn. They've got their recipe and yeah. that's going out. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 But anyways, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. I just want to thank you so much for talking to you. And to our viewers, I, I just want to say thank you so much for watching. If you've made it thus far, you most definitely like the content. Um, it helps out the channel a ton if you could like the video and share it among your friends and family. Um, also, if you consider, uh, could consider, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, if you consider donating on Patreon, this is something that uh, it's a platform that financially supports our channel, allows us to talk to more people, get better equipment, um, do better interviews. So that would also help us out a lot. Um, just please remember, we have a wonderful edition by the Libertas Choir right here after um, in the video, and you must enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. This has been Worldview.